Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at cars and transport from a variety of angles. I'm David Brown and in this program we start out with some feedback. We put up a post on our social media sites about a great Australian car, the 1964 EH Holden, and we received some great comments from the public. And among other things, it raised issues of unusual optional extras. At that time, you could have specified special features such as plastic seat covers, a four-piece luggage set that is made to fit neatly into the boot, a back parcel shelf, and an extra inside door pull-to handle. And we have an interview with motoring journalist Paul Morell on two subjects, the cars that he had 40 years ago and the Toyota MR2 that was on the stage for Australia's Eurovision competitor. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Our social media pages, Facebook and Instagram, just search for Cars, Transport and Culture. This program was first broadcast on the 20th of May, 2023. This is Overdrive across Australia. Let's start with a bit of feedback. I put up some photos on our social media sites, Facebook and Instagram, both are named Cars Transport Culture, of a beautifully maintained 1964 E.H. Holden Premier sedan, I saw in a parking area down south near Wollongong. For overseas listeners, Holden was the General Motors vehicle brand in Australia. The first Holden was launched in 1948 and they dominated the market, particularly in the 50s and 60s. Now, the EH Holden was the makeover model of the fourth generation of their family six-cylinder cars. It was built between August 1963 and February 1965. Holden said that the EH became the fastest selling Australian car for the time with over a quarter of a million units during its 18-month manufacturing run. The population in Australia at the time was just over 11.1 million people. The Premier was the top-of-the-range model with a 179 cubic inch motor with a little badge on the back which became a king trophy for young badge stealers. It had bucket seats, fold-down centre armrest in the back seat, carpets, metallic paint, a centre console incorporating a heater and a mister, a diamond dot radio, a handbrake warning light and chrome-plated wheel trims. Now, in the comments, Graham Roberts said the radio wasn't standard, but I think it might have been for the Premier model. But there was also a long list of optional extras, but not the sort of thing that you would expect today. Warren Bryce wrote a comment saying, I had an original NASCO parts and accessory booklet. Don't know what happened to it, but would have been cherished by an owner if I had kept control of it. In fact, it listed 16 optional extras. Two were anti-glare, a full rear vision mirror, or a mask over the standard mirror. There was a visor vanity mirror, a handbrake warning lamp, cooler ride cushions, that's, I guess, a seat cushion, gear lever lock, plastic seat covers. There's a comment about that in a little while. Seat belts. Door pull-to handles, that's a little half-oval type piece of metal that you screwed onto the, the top of the door before you got to the window. 
Venetian shades, rubber foot mats, a suitcase set of four specifically designed suitcases that snugly fit into the boot, a rear seat speaker, a handrail. Now that was a rail around the top of the back of the front seat that gave a handrail to the passengers. There was a parcel shelf and a glove box lamp. Now, our good mate Alan from Artarman said, My schoolmate and I used to spot heavily accessorised Holdens and we christened them Nascomobiles. We'll talk to Paul Morell a bit later about this. Some of the other comments were particularly interesting. We mentioned the option of plastic seat covers. Well, Ray Blackman said, I remember plastic seat covers. What the heck were they thinking back in the day? Vinyl was bad enough. But there were clearly some fond memories. Peter Evans, well known to us, said, My uncle had one, silver grey, with a red leather interior, remembering them as an eight-year-old, being wowed by the whole experience, but especially the interior. The one I had photographed was a, a light green. Our previous station manager, Paul Just, said, I had one exactly the same colour. I love that car. I can't recall what I did with it, but I hope it went to a good home. Steve Taylor said, There is nothing quite like an E.H. Holden. Drove one for 15 years still. My favourite drive car. And Ross Wheatley said, A prestige car in the day. Now, Gina Gina is her sign-on, and she left a comment saying, The Venetian blinds at the rear window. Who makes these? And Charles Munns, ever helpful, wrote back and said, O'Brien Auto Shades in South Australia still manufacture them and blinds for many other models. We might have thought that this was a very blokey topic, but Leanne Oliver said, Ah, not only blokes like the old girls. Barry Cruz says it was the first Holden with a hydromatic transmission, although some were not particularly complimentary about that particular gearbox. And I had offended a few people when I said that while they were considered a good family size vehicle, Back in 1964, they are now about the size of a modern Toyota Corolla. Terry Morgan didn't like that at all, saying, sure, they had more legroom than a Corolla. And Frank Ingratti replied, I reckon you can get a modern Corolla inside the cabin. Actually, it's not that easy. And we'll have a look at how cars have grown in later editions of the program. But Susie Fraser said, My boyfriend had one of these. I used to sit next to him in the middle seat in the front seat without a seatbelt. That was in 1968. My teenage years, the best. I did reply to her and said that the flat bench seat in the front was called a COD seat. It stood for Come Over Darling, which was the consequence of no seatbelts and a vigorous left-hand cornering technique. John Nelson said, an old mate bought an identical colour wagon for $800 as new at the time in about the 80s. Greg Farrell said, nice, had two in my day and still love them. As did Donna Thompson, love those cars, she said. And Lance Sands reported on the performance. He said, dad had no idea his EH could still do 100 mile an hour back in 1975. Lance adds, I did. 
Ray White said EH with the 179 motor was only initially released as an auto. The manual transmission couldn't handle the power. It was released a few months or so later, remembering them well while doing my apprenticeship, and my brother bought one of the first manuals. They dropped fantastic wheelies. I know I drove it so much. Pete Clarkson said, My first car, 63 model, paid 100 bucks. Wish I had it now. Sean McKinnon said they were great cars. I remember the whining gearbox and the peculiar and unique to that car squeaking door hinges. Lance Sands also offered another comment. He said, Dad had two great old EH cars and many other models, real Holdens, not fake commodes. And he included two emojis there. The first one was brown and the second one was a box. And Bob Heath finally said, bloody old E.H. rust buckets, no one wants them. Give it to me, give it to me. This raises the whole point of optional extras at various points in the time in cars. Do you remember an extra? Are you trying to tell the young people of today that? And they won't believe you. No, they won't. Send us your memories at feedback at drivenmedia.com.au or you can leave a recorded message at 028003-4295. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Amongst the larger SUVs, the Mazda CX-9 stands out. It's a luxurious and comfortable six or seven seat SUV for the family. I just drove the CX-9 Azami all-wheel drive. All CX-9s come with a 2.5 litre four-cylinder turbo petrol engine, produces 170 kilowatts and 420 newton meters. This drives a six-speed automatic transmission. It's a well-balanced combination, but is a little thirsty, especially around town and also a touch dated. The CX-9 is stylish and bigger than it looks. It has the familiar long nose and sleek grille of the Mazdas. Inside it's particularly comfortable and well laid out. However, as good as the CX-9 is, it's also starting to show its age. For example, non-touch central screen control by a dial is well behind best practice now. It's due for an update. The real purpose of the CX-9 is to cocoon the occupants and provide a smooth, luxurious, quiet and comfortable ride. And it does that. The Mazda CX-9 Azami is priced from around $72,000 plus the usual costs. This is Overdrive across Australia. It's our home station's 40th year anniversary, so we're reflecting on cars that we may have been driving or our parents may have had 40 years ago. And an expert in cars in general and his own motoring experience, which is extensive, is Paul Morell, who joins us on the line now. G'day, Paul. Hi, David. How are you? 40 years ago, did you have your driving licence by then? <laughs> I was indeed, David. God, it takes me back. That's, that's a, so long ago, isn't it? Funnily enough, in 1983, I'd just come back from an overseas posting. I had a bit of money burning a hole in my pocket, and I had oh. to buy a new car here. So I sort of made, made a short list, if you like, of what I was interested in buying. And that short list was in order. It was the Renault Fuego, you may remember, a very pretty little car. 
Uh, I looked at the Lancia Beta Coupe. Oh, I love it. I looked at the the Honda Prelude, oh. and I had the Mazda RX-7 on my list. So I had a you know a nice little list of cars, and they were all in '83. They were all around twenty thousand dollars each, so pretty much oh. on a par. And the Farago, that was a little less sports car and a little more sedan. Funnily enough, I said to my wife when I came back, "Look, I've you know I'll look at them all, and I'll." probably immediately reject the Fuego because it's really a family car. I will probably immediately reject the Lancia because I'll be in love with it, but not brave enough to buy one. The Honda Prelude, they wouldn't even let me test drive it unless I gave them a deposit, so I crossed that off the list straight away. And I said to her, I'll probably end up buying the RX-7, which in fact I did. Is that the one with the long bonnet? It did, yeah. They were a lovely shape. Well, they're all sort of, they're all sports coupes. So yeah, I knew what I was looking for. And... uh, I love that prelude. I thought that it was a great balance of this style, long bonnet, but not cheap and nasty. In a way, it fitted into a whole design. Oh, it did. In fact, I I recommended one to a very good friend of mine, and she loved it, absolutely adored the car, until she put it on its roof as she headed north of Sydney one day. That took care of that. Oh, okay. uh, That's a hell of a bit of parking. Yeah, it was. It was. She was on her way to join us at, oh, I think we were staying up. I can't remember where it was now, but we, she was coming to join us up there on holiday and put it on its roof. <laughs> but yes, the RX-7, I bought. I ended up buying the RX-7 and didn't regret it once. In fact, it was probably the contemporary car I owned longer than any other. I don't think it was as pretty as some. I would have preferred the looks of the Prelude and the Lancer, which I think was stunning, but I'm not being judgmental. It, it was a rotary engine. Did that in any way put a barrier to you or was that an interesting experience to me it was an interesting experience it was one of those things it reminded me if if you like of a very small capacity car small capacity engine with a with a turbocharger so not much happened down low and it didn't have a lot of torque so you really had to sort of stir it along but it was a great little car it uh apart from its uh, fuel thirst that was about (laughs) the only problem it had but just a great little car they revved to extreme didn't they yeah, they did. They had a they had a cutout and they had a, a warning buzzer, which I which I tested out on regular occasions. <laughs> so it was a warning buzzer, but it wasn't one that stopped you. Yeah, there was a there was a cutout as well. Oh, cutout as well. So as you approached the red line, the buzzer went off, and then if you ignored the buzzer, then basically the, the cutout kicked in. The principle was fine. Instead of going up and down, such as a piston, which has to change direction 180 degrees every time, it's really like a hula hoop, if you like, a circle, which if you just keep brushing the outside, pushing the outside, you keep it rolling in one direction, rather than going up one way and then having to immediately be pushed back down the other way. Is that a way to describe it? You know, not being a particularly technical person, I think that's probably part of the reason it didn't have a great deal of torque um, Ah. because it was spinning around in a cylinder rather than Mm. reciprocating. Sarich tried the same, a very similar principle, didn't he? He did. I think the only time he succeeded with his principle was when he made a lawnmower. Well, he got the two-stroke technology working which he had to do for his engine, but then he just applied it to a normal piston engine. Now, I actually drove a car that had one of those engines installed, but it being a two-stroke, it revved and made so much noise, 
I let a colleague have a drive of it, and she kept changing gears at very low revs because she <laughs> thought she'd revved it to the limits because it sounded so bad, even if it was only doing 2,000 revs per minute. <laughs> it's funny going back to the Lancia. I, as I said to my wife, the Lancia, I'm going to fall in love with the Lancia. I know that's what I'm going to want to buy. But I said, I, I, just, I probably won't end up buying it. And she said, oh, why not? Because, you know, if you love it, why don't you just buy it? And I said, well, number one, number one, the reliability issue. Mm. Uh, number two, the resale issue. And she said, oh, okay. And we got to, I rang the Lancia dealer in Sydney and I said, I'm coming to look at this car tomorrow, 11 o'clock. And I arrived there and they, they stood in the showroom and said, oh, we haven't started it. So they stood there and literally cranked it over. And it just went, zzz, 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 zzz. this is a brand new car in the showroom. <laughs> And I said to my father, well, this, this is not a good sign, is it? And they finally, they, got it, they finally got it started. And it was running on one cylinder. I mean, it was literally pumping, pumping smoke out into the showroom. So I said to my wife, look, while they're doing that, we'll go out and have a look in the car yard outside. And there was a sort of car yard full of 12-month-old Lancia Beta Coupes. And they were all half the price of the brand new one I was looking at. I said to my wife, well, there's point number two. <laughs> So I, I did take it for a test drive. I did love it, and I just said I can't do it to myself. I just no. cannot live with a car that unreliable. It's like a very appealing partner who becomes high maintenance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't let my wife hear you say that. <laughs> my first thought wasn't in any way to try and make a comment about her. I was thinking what she might think about you. Well, she knows that. <laughs> Contrary and high maintenance, that pretty much sums me up. <laughs> How long did you keep the Mazda? Um, I kept it until, funnily enough, I kept it for, oh, I bought it in 83 and I sold it in 1990 when I bought the first of the Mark II Toyota MR2s. Oh, we're going to talk about them. We are going to talk about them, yeah. And I I hadn't found anything to replace the, Toy the Mazda with. It was one of those cars that nothing sort of came along that piqued my interest enough to swap it over. So I actually had it for seven years. And as I said, probably the longest I had owned any contemporary car. Is that the time when the Celica got very cutesy? Oh, it became a, a hairdresser's car, absolutely. And I, you know, there was no way I'd ever buy a Celica. Um, mm. And that's why I said when the when the MR2 came along, I saw it when it was released overseas, and I immediately put an order in. And uh, yeah, bought it, bought one of the first of the Series Two Mark II MR2s to arrive in the country. It's very significant that it was an MR2 in the Australian presentation made at Eurovision. Paul, let's talk about that after the break. This is Overdrive across Australia. We're back after the break and Paul Morell, motoring journalist extraordinaire, was talking about his experience 40 years ago in buying a car. Having lived through that period, he then went on to a Toyota MR2. Now, Paul, the Australian representative in Eurovision, Voyager, I think they were called, had a car in the background of their presentation. What was that vehicle? Well, I saw, initially I saw one little photograph of it, not being a huge fan of, of Eurovision. I didn't watch any of it. <laughs> um <laughs> And I saw the photograph of the car in the front, and I'm pretty sure it was a Toyota MR2 Mark I. Mm. And then, then I put myself through the agony of actually watching their performance. And, uh, yeah, it was a, a Toyota MR2 Mark I, and they were in production from about 
85 to 1989, 90. Given the very flowery, over-the-top performance, perhaps the Celica might have been the vehicle. <laughs> it might have been. Might have, mind you, I think the MR2 was probably far more memorable than the song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, Given that it was Australia, Australian representatives, I'd have to say the MR2, with a style that was very simplicity in the way, it wasn't a huge wing on the back or flared guards or any of those sorts of things. It was a neat little sports car. I don't think that suited the style of the presentation at all. No, no, it should have been, I'll get myself into all sorts of trouble here, but it should have been something like a Holden Sandman panel van. (laughs) (laughs) When talking about the presentation, you notice that when Voyager were doing the singing, and I'm using air quotes there when I say the word singing, that they were all, the whole band, covered with beads and fake diamond-looking stuff, sequins, sequins all over them. Do you think that it might have been better if they had have had a Brock Commodore with a polarizer in the background? Oh, I don't. Possibly, the crystal, possibly the, crystal. the crystal inside the car. <laughs> Look, I don't think it made much difference. Um, I don't think. Well, I, I honestly think the car's probably attracted more attention than the than the competition. It seems to have come up all over the place. People saying, "What was that car? And what what were they yes. in?" But yeah, there were any number of things. I mean, I would have, I would love to have seen something more iconically Australian, like maybe a Bolwell Nagari, oh. for example, or you know, something that we we could be proud of. How do you describe the Bolwell Nagari? Um, flawed, but uh, <laughs> just beautiful, beautiful looking car, a stunning design. This was a two door sports car with a big V eight. They did a coupe and they did a, a convertible. Huh? And it had a Ford Falcon, sorry, a Ford three fifty one cubic inch engine under the bonnet, so it was um, it was an accident looking for somewhere to happen. Really, it was the style of those Cobras and things at the time. Well, no, the Cobra had much bigger, older style, curvy mud guards about it. The Bolwell was a more modern shape, but it was a time when you shoehorned a big V eight into a two door sports car. Into a flimsy fiberglass sports car, yeah. <laughs> and then pointed yourself at the road and thought to myself, will I get home in one piece? <laughs> and facing in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, going back, to the, going back to the MR2 for a moment, that, Mark, that very overlooked motor car, I mean, really was, a, 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 as you say, a sweet little sports car. Um, a, some time ago, I wrote a story where I compared it to, because I had owned an MR2 Mark II, and I'd almost bought a Lancia Monte Carlo many years ago as well, and I thought they had amazing similarities. And I sat down and looked at the two cars side by side, and then I realised that, in fact, the Lancia Monte Carlo was, had more in common with the Mark I MR2 than with the Mark II. They were almost exactly the same size. They had almost exactly the same power. They had the same sort of 0 to 60 time. Um, quite amazing. And they were they were almost 10 years apart. So Yeah, that was the Monte Carlo, which it wasn't squarish in a box like shape, but it had angular lines more than, say, the Beta. You know, it was almost a bit Ferrari-ish in a way. Very much so. <clears throat> it was a really nice, yeah, very Ferrari-ish. Um, lovely little car, but they didn't sell a great number of them. And interestingly enough, of course, typical of, perhaps if you like, typical of the era, they had major braking problems. They wouldn't stop. 
there was so so little weight over the front that they just they just run straight into things. Um, <laughs> so they had to uh, they actually pulled it off the market and redesigned the redesigned the braking system to make it stop. So it was on the market from oh, I'm just trying to think now. It was on the market from 1974, and then they pulled it off the market again in in 1981, I think, and then put it back on the market again. So. I think it's one of the greatest looking balanced sports car of the time. And the fact that it started in the 70s is a huge credit to Lancia, to my mind. We sort of forget that Lancia were very advanced for the time. Lancia were very, they were almost fixated on the quality of their product, which is a bit hard to believe if you owned a Lancia Beta. Uh, but they were, they were beautifully designed and beautifully built. But then, of course, they suffered from that, that horrible era of, they bought lots of Russian Russian steel, and ah. you could sit there and watch them rusting. The next Eurovision, perhaps you and I could enter into it with uh, with something that is a more motoring reflection of Australia. Not with our singing voices, David. <laughs> Does that matter? <laughs> I don't know. I'd, I'd have to do that that strange haircut, the, the you know, shaved up one side and almost down to my waist on the other side. But I do the same thing, only I start at the front with the thinning. <laughs> and I think we could use perhaps what I've just put up on social media, that lovely, well-kept, beautifully-kept E.H. Holden. Still a practical car, biggest, you know, huge-selling Holden. In mm. fact, I was uh, doing a presentation a couple of weeks ago and a chap in the, in the audience told me he had an E.H. Holden. And I said, oh, so what the the standard or the special or the premier. Mm. He said, oh, the premier. And I said, oh, with the leather bucket seats. And uh, and I said, and the engine, 179? He went, yes. So he then invited me around to have a look at it. And I went and had a look at it. It was a special. It wasn't a premier and it didn't have a 179 motor. But he was, <laughs> other than that, he knew all about it. They say this is the thing of politics, really. It's not whether you are doing well. It's whether you think you are doing well. Oh, other pe- or whether other people think you're doing well. My colleague, whose family loved Holden's, and had them for most of his life, he said that the optional extras, which included things like the Venetian blinds in the back and a, a little handle, an extra handle to help you shut the door, were produced by NASCO. NASCO, yeah. And so whenever they saw a well-optioned old Holden, they'd call it a NASCO mobile. I mentioned that at the beginning of the program. Oh yes, you'd see if it had the if it had the rear spats on it, and it had the little the little flying winglets on the on the front guards. It had the sun visor over the front windscreen. It had the Venetian blinds in the back window. That was a NASCO special. <laughs> Paul, I always enjoy our discussions with the reminiscers in particular. I thank you very much for your time. Thank you for reminding me of how old I am, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I've got to go down, then we've got to go down <laughs> together. <laughs> and that was Paul Morell, motoring journalist from the website Senior Driver Oz, that's AUS, dot com. Well worth a read. You're listening to Overdrive. Today we're going to chat about tyres, more specifically tyres for my own Mitsubishi Pajero. Regular listeners will know that my personal car is an older Pajero that is well equipped for true four-wheel drive adventures. Currently we have a set of Bridgestone dual all-terrain tyres that went on some 10 years ago now. Over the years they have travelled probably 55 to 60,000 k's of heavy-duty off-road and freeway driving. The tread is still good, but there's a little-known thing about tyres. They age and become a real danger to occupants. 
Tyres are made up of steel belts and rubber essentially, and as the rubber gets older it cracks and frays, just like an old pair of boots where the soles simply crumble. You may not always see the cracks, but they are there, and extremely dangerous. This applies to all tyres on cars, trucks, motorbikes, buses, etc. Bridgestone have a really good explanation of what happens on their website. Honestly, I've really pushed the limits of tyre safety by keeping my tyres for 10 years, even though the tread is still good. So I'm now deciding what to replace them with. This is a Motoring Minute. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Paul Morell, all the commentators on our Facebook and Instagram sites, Cars, Transport, Culture, and Mark Wesley for help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or go to our socials on Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.